Welcome to Market Matters, our markets podcast on making sense, the hub for J.P. Morgan corporate and investment bank podcasts. In each episode of Market Matters, we discuss the latest news and trends shaping markets today. Hi, I'm Eloise Goulder, head of the Data Assets and Alpha Group here at J.P. Morgan. Today, I'm really excited to be joined by Anna Stepnitska, who is a global macroeconomist within the global macro and strategic asset allocation team at Fidelity International. And I'm really looking forward to asking Anna all about her outlook for the global economy at this stage and also how she uses data within the macroeconomic process and how this has evolved in recent years. So, Anna, thank you so much for joining us here today. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So, can you start by introducing yourself in your own words? So, what's your role? What do you focus on? And where do you strive to add value within the investment process? Sure. I'm global macroeconomist at Fidelity's global macro and strategic cost allocation team. We form views on the macro outlook across key developed and emerging markets over different time horizons. So we look at very short term, so that's the cycle, and also longer term, which is more structural outlook. And we work closely with our investment teams, with our portfolio managers to link these views to investment implications. So our views are the inputs into our tactical cost allocation process and strategic cost allocation process. And importantly, we don't tend to focus on point forecasting. We look at markets, we look at economies, and we try to identify those views that are out of consensus. We try to form a view relative to trend and relative to consensus. And we believe that's what can really add value in the investment process. That's really fascinating. Thank you. Especially this idea that you don't really focus on point forecasts, but you see much more value in isolating where your views are truly out of consensus. So perhaps on that point, can I ask about your views today? Where do you think you're most counter to consensus right now? We uh, still expect a recession in the US and in Europe and some other developed markets. As you know, this has been a long view in the markets that has been debated whether we will see a recession or not. And in the last few weeks, markets have moved to price out recession in a number of places. And also the, the street analysts have changed, have upgraded their forecast. But we still remain firmly in the recession camp, mostly because of the significant tightening that we've already seen. That tightening is already in the system. And we think that a scenario of a soft landing that many analysts now believe in is a very low probability event. The path to get there is very narrow. And we think that the markets are complacent about the recession risks in this respect. Thank you. I agree that market expectations for this recession scenario do seem to be increasingly pushed back or at least muted in terms of the severity of the recession. So in your view then, what's really driving this more bearish view? So we think that, as I mentioned, there's been 
already a lot of tightening that's in the system. And we see that tightening moving from the monetary policy tools to the credit channel. So it's definitely already in the credit channel in the US. We can still see elevated amount of stress in the banking system. And it's already hitting the real economy as well. It's very soft. It's very tentative, but we do see growth in the U.S. rolling over. And this is driven by the tightening that's already in the system. And that is going to get worse. We're going to see worse data and uh, more recessionary science over the next few weeks. At the same time, we do believe that inflation is going to be persistent. It's unlikely to fall back to target very quickly. And in this respect, the Fed will have to keep or attempt to keep rates at higher levels for longer. Whether they will be able to do that or not is a different question, but at least they will try to do that to tame inflation. And so all these will likely result in recession. Now, we're not expecting a severe recession, at least at this point in time. We think it's likely to be what we call a cyclical recession, relatively mild. But actually, ironically, the longer the recession is delayed, so the more this timing is pushed into 24, the higher the probability is that we will get a deeper recession because this is where we start seeing those maturity walls hitting and companies requiring to refinance at much higher rates. Thank you. So it sounds like your more bearish view is really driven by two key pillars, one of them growth and credit tightening and the idea that growth will deteriorate in the near term, but the other one driven by inflation and this idea that inflation is more persistent than others or consensus may expect. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, this just means that the Fed will have to keep financial conditions tighter and policy rates higher for longer. Again, as I said, whether they will do that depends on the amount of stress in the system. And so far, they have been successful at separating their financial stability tools from policy tools. But if there's too much stress and they can't separate those tools, they might have to cut rates perhaps earlier than they're planning to. But at this point in time, they will try to keep rates at high levels for longer. And that means growth damage. And in terms of the inflation point, inflation being more persistent, when do you really think we'll see this play out? And I ask that because the issue of base effects has been coming up a lot in our client conversations. Given that US CPI peaked, I think, last June, I would assume that base effects will get much tougher for CPI from July onwards. So actually, that CPI print on July the 12th, I think, will be a really critical one. What's your view on that? Yeah, I think it's important to distinguish between headline and core. Of course, the base effects for headline inflation have been very strong and will be very strong over the next few months. And there is no question that headline will continue falling. But as we know, most developed central banks focus on core inflation. That remains elevated. In fact, it continues accelerating in a number of countries, particularly in Europe. And when we look at various alternative measures of inflation, trimmed mean or core services, excluding housing, that's the Fed's favorite measure. 
they are declining at a very slow pace. So I don't think there is much doubt that inflation will continue falling from here. It's more about the pace of adjustment and where it ends up. And we don't think that it's very likely that it will go back to target anytime soon, at least not over the next 12 to 24 months. Thank you. Very interesting. So if I understand correctly, headline might continue to fall, but the core has looked quite persistent for a while. Yes, it's falling, but it's not falling at a very rapid pace. And that's more problematic for you. It is problematic. Well, not just for me, for the central banks. I think we need to recognize that structurally some of the trends that we're seeing now will continue putting up pressure on inflation. And a couple of them that we particularly have been thinking about a lot recently, one is net zero transition. Of course, it depends on how it evolves, but if we do see more measures on uh, carbon pricing coming in place over the next few years, that will be very inflationary. And the other one is demographics. There are different theories on what aging population means for inflation, but at least in the medium term, we see it as an inflationary force. And we already see this in how the labor market dynamics have been playing out since COVID, as a lot of people retired earlier, and the resulting tightness is part of that. So overall, whatever happens over the next few months, inflation is going to be persistent, is going to be above target. And so that's the question for central banks, how they want to deal with that. Well, there are several threads there that I'd like to really hone in on. But let's start with Fed's target. You've just mentioned that. Do you think there's any chance that the Fed actually changes its mandate? If inflation really does prove to be persistent, well above the 2% mark, perhaps closer to 4%, let's say, do you think the Fed could just turn around and change its mandate? Yeah, that's something that we have been asked a lot recently. And we think that the probability of a mandate change is low, at least over the next few years. They've just revamped their framework. They have just revised the way that they look at inflation. And I think it's politically difficult to change the target. It can also lead to even low credibility. It can be very damaging for central banks. So I don't think it's about the change in the target or in the mandate, but it's more about how they frame this and communicate this around the existing mandate. And for the Fed specifically, they are operating within the so-called flexible average inflation targeting framework. And there are a number of parameters that they can adjust. For example, over how many months or years they average inflation. Where is the average? They can adjust that to suit their narrative, I suppose. At some point, they will have a trade-off, whether to keep rates, again, higher for longer and accept sluggish growth or tolerate high inflation and communicate it in a way that would be acceptable by the markets. I think both of these are really hard. But we think that it's probably most likely that they will have to tolerate higher inflation because if you keep rates high for longer, yes, you pay the price in terms of growth, but you might pay the price in terms of financial stability. And with the debt burden so high, particularly post-COVID, I think that's going to be pretty expensive. So at some point, we think 
the Fed will have to confront this dilemma and they will have to accept the overshoot and communicate it to the markets. But how they get there, the path might not be very smooth. And that's the big question right now. Absolutely. Well, that was exactly what I wanted to ask you. What does this mean for equities? Because presumably, if the Fed does ultimately tolerate, as you put it, higher inflation, ultimately that could be not too bad for equities. But the point at which equity participants make the realisation that the Fed has, in the medium term, abandoned this mandate, that would not be pretty. That would be my assumption. How do you think equities respond to this dynamic? So I think we need to distinguish between different time horizons here. So shorter term, so let's say the next six to 12 months, because we have a very high risk of recession coming, we think that risk assets are not going to do well. So from a tactical asset allocation perspective, in the multi-asset team at Fidelity, we are underweight equities, underweight credit and overweight government bonds and overweight cash. So this is a very defensive positioning, given that we're moving into that recessionary environment. So that's the short term. And then how about the medium term? Well, this is where you have to have a view on when you're at the bottom of the market. And historically, when the Fed starts cutting rate, this is where markets tend to bottom and then it's, it's really great for risk. Now, it depends on what happens this time, but our concern is that the Fed looks at lagging indicators right now. They don't look at forward-looking indicators. So by the time they see deterioration in the labor markets, it might be a little bit too late. So we will be in recession. And then it depends on how the market will interpret the Fed's ability to cushion that recession. So it's always hard to pick the bottom. But once we see financial conditions easing and the Fed cutting rates, that's going to be a good time to go back into risky assets. But again, the path to get there can still be pretty long from here. Yes. And it's worth noting, actually, that our JP Morgan cross-asset strategists are also relatively bearish risk, I think for similar reasons to the ones you've cited. And actually, they've recently written that bonds imply a recession while stocks are pricing in a soft landing. Do you agree with that view, Anna, this idea that equities in particular are just failing to price in the recessionary outlook from here? I think there's a bit more nuance there in a sense that, and that's something that has been talked about a lot in the market over the past few weeks is that the leadership of the equity market has been very narrow. So if you look at smaller caps or some other parts of the market, they haven't been doing so well, not as well as large caps. So I think it's a bit more nuanced, but for sure, relative to the yield curve, for example, equity markets are not pricing a recession. Yep. And one puzzle for many investors, I think, is this idea that growth and labour markets have remained so resilient in the US for quite some time now. And Anna, you mentioned the labour market earlier in respect to demographics and what the impact of an ageing population in the US might have. But really, in terms of the recent strength we've seen in labour markets in the US, how do you explain that? I think it has been partly driven by post-COVID distortions, both on the supply side and on the demand side. 
it's related to a lot of people dropping out of the labor force and some of them are coming back now, but we still have quite a lot of people missing or not in the labor force due to health-related reasons. And that's actually the case in the UK and in the US. Lots of research is ongoing on this topic and I'm sure we'll find out soon what exactly happened in COVID and in the post-COVID period, but that's something that has been driving the tightness in the labor market. Also, immigration policies, Brexit here in the UK, have partly contributed to that dynamic. And of course, the services sector has benefited in the post-COVID bounce. And that's exactly where the tightness has been due to lack of labor. And this is something that is now slowly fading, very slowly, but it's fading. So the supply chains are healing. And it seems that this puzzle is slowly going away, but it's still there. Fascinating. Thank you. And the other bullish argument I often hear is around the consumer cash pile in the US. I often hear that it's really healthy and that this will really buffer the consumer and ultimately buffer the economy from any deep recession. What's your take on consumer cash piles? The strength of consumer has surprised since the start of the year. And we have definitely been in the camp that has underestimated the strength of consumption. And it's kind of easy in retrospect and hindsight. But I think what has been driving that is, again, post-COVID, COVID-related excesses, excess savings, and also partly the payback from the collapse in consumer confidence that we saw in 22 after the start of the war in Ukraine and the shock to the energy market and energy prices. So as consumer confidence collapsed, there was a bit less consumption. And as it turned out that actually we had warmer winter, so worst uh, growth fears didn't materialize. Confidence started rebounding at the beginning of this year. And so this, in combination with that excess savings cushion, has been driving strong consumption across developed markets. So I guess the question is, when does that run out or when does it run dry? What's your take on that? It's fine. There's no single answer there. You would have thought you look at the numbers and then, you know, you can figure out. But it really depends on what assumptions you make when you calculate the pre-COVID trend, whether you look at the last 36 months or 48 months pre-COVID, that actually changes the trend pretty substantially. So some calculate there is no cushion left and some calculate that there's quite a big cushion still there. I think there is probably something there, but my sense is that people are becoming less willing to spend it as uncertainty around the economic outlook is elevated, it's increasing. And so we do have evidence generally in macroeconomics that following big shocks, uh, people tend to turn their savings into a what we call precautionary savings. So something they might just keep for a while until uncertainty is lower from here. So even if there is some cushion, it doesn't mean it's going to be spent completely. And that's why we think that this consumer strength is probably slowly coming to an end. 
Very interesting. Thank you. Well, in my opinion, very convincing arguments around the medium term bear case for equities, whether it's driven by the demand side and growth deteriorating from here or indeed driven by the inflation side and the idea that inflation is seen to be more persistent and the Fed in some way has to react to that. And it is worth noting, as I mentioned earlier, that this is relatively consistent with our house view here at JP Morgan. So before we leave this topic, one final question I wanted to ask is regional variations. You've spoken to the growth slowdown in developed economies and you've spoken about labour market dynamics, I think, across developed economies. But do you see any differentiation in terms of outlook and equity market view between the US and Europe and perhaps Asian markets? Yeah, I think it's interesting. Right now, we haven't seen that policy tightening in Europe hitting the real economy yet. We are seeing it in the US, but it's not the case in Europe, even though it is already in the credit channel. One reason is timing, because the US started the tightening cycle earlier, about four months or so. So we think that Europe is probably behind the US by one or two quarters in terms of that transmission mechanism. But for the time being, we do prefer European equities to US equities in terms of our tactical asset allocation. And of course, also because Europe is more exposed to emerging market growth story or China growth story, even though it doesn't seem to be as great as many expected. And we are seeing more disappointing data on the China side. But as the economy continues to reopen and consumer confidence improves, that's the key, really. We think to unlocking China growth, or cyclically at least from here, we think that Europe will continue benefiting from this external dynamics. And so for the time being, we prefer Europe to the US. Very interesting. Well, it is worth noting that's one difference, really, your view versus our house view where we're more bearish on Europe. Oh, it's good. We don't agree on everything. Exactly. (laughs) Healthy sign. So can we turn to data now? This is a data-driven podcast and our team is a data-driven team. And I imagine data is absolutely key as an input to your analysis, Anna. Is that right? And how has your use of data changed over the last, say, five years? Of course, data is very important and we base our views on evidence, which is both quantitative and qualitative. Over the past few years, I would say it's been very interesting and exciting in a way to be an economist or a data person because we've seen a lot of new data, new data sets available, which was really created during COVID because of COVID. Of course, we were tracking uh, all the vaccinations, etc. But we also, during COVID, we all started tracking mobility trends, restaurant bookings, flight bookings, uh, online prices. And that has stuck and that has been very helpful in identifying where activity is in real time. So we don't have to wait for PMIs, even, of course, we wait for PMIs and we like the PMIs. These are server-based, but monthly indicators, but we do have high frequency data now. Some is daily, some is weekly to have a 
better gauge on where real-time activity is. So this has been one very important and exciting development, together with some other more experimental databases, experimental surveys that, again, were put together during COVID by central banks or other institutions. And some of them are still being run and used. And again, we use them in our indicators for where real-time activity is. Absolutely. And do you believe that, and I'm not sure if you have enough evidence to support this yet, but do you believe that your forecasts and perhaps economists' forecasts in general are more accurate for PMIs or for GDP, let's say, now that you have access to these more real-time activity data sets? I can't say that I have quantitative evidence for that, but I would say that they are probably, yes, more accurate, more timely, and we, we have a better sense of where we are heading every month before we see a new set of the PMIs, for example. Mm, fascinating to think that just in the last three years, really, macroeconomic forecasts could be that much more accurate as a result of this new data. That's really, really interesting. So we've covered the shorter term and the medium term and your views around growth and inflation. So can we come to the longer term now? And I know you've done a lot of work, Anna, around your climate modelling. So I appreciate this is a really meaty subject to cover briefly with me now. But could you just provide an overview of your work here? Yeah, so for the long-term uh, themes, one focus for me and for the team has been climate change and its implications for capital market assumptions and for strategic asset allocation. And actually, again, perhaps to your question earlier on data, in the last few years, we got a number of different institutions making climate scenarios publicly available. So, for example, the Network for Green the Financial System and GFS, which is a network of key central banks and supervisors, they have run this exercise together with the climate modeling community, the community that models the impact of temperature increases on various sectors and on various economies. They work together to produce a set of different scenarios for central banks, supervisors, companies, market participants, anyone really out there to model their own exposure to climate change, to understand their own vulnerabilities. And so we have used the scenarios to try to understand what climate change might mean for macroeconomic outcomes and in turn what it might mean for risk return profiles of different asset classes. And just to preview the conclusion, actually the outcomes are very different relative to the baseline that people usually use. And also the outcomes differ a lot depending on which scenario you look. So if you don't take climate change into account in your capital markets assumptions and strategic cost allocation, you're definitely getting it wrong. That's so interesting, this idea that your climate assumptions can actually have an impact on capital markets and allocations today. 
Because I think traditionally we think about climate assumptions having a key impact on global temperatures, for example. But this idea that you can marry it back quantifiably to asset classes today, it's absolutely incredible. I would love to dive deeper into this topic, but perhaps it's something we can revisit on a future podcast. I think we've just covered such interesting ground from your short-term and medium-term views around inflation and growth and the potential for a recession in the developed world and the US to your longer-term analysis around climate transition and, of course, your use of data throughout your processes. All really, really interesting. So thank you very much, Anna, for taking the time to speak with us today. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you also to our listeners for tuning in to this bi-weekly podcast from our group. If you'd like to read some of the content that Anna has discussed, please do take a look in our podcast notes where you'll see relevant links. Otherwise, if you have feedback or questions, please do get in touch with us via our website at jpmorgan.com forward slash market dash data dash intelligence. And there you can always send us a message via the contact us form. And with that, we will close. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Market Matters. If you've enjoyed this conversation, we hope you'll review, rate, and subscribe to J.P. Morgan's Making Sense to stay on top of the latest industry news and trends. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and YouTube. The views expressed in this podcast may not necessarily reflect the views of J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. and its affiliates, together J.P. Morgan, they are not the product of J.P. Morgan's research department and do not constitute a recommendation, advice, or an offer or a solicitation to buy or sell any security or financial instrument. This podcast is intended for institutional and professional investors only and is not intended for retail investor use. It is provided for information purposes only. Referenced products and services in this podcast may not be suitable for you and may not be available in all jurisdictions. J.P. Morgan may make markets and trade as principal in securities and other asset classes and financial products that may have been discussed. For additional disclaimers and regulatory disclosures, please visit www.jpmorgan.com forward slash disclosures forward slash sales and trading disclaimer. For the avoidance of doubt, opinions expressed by any external speakers are the personal views of those speakers and do not represent the views of J.P. Morgan.